tech nonprofits, in contrast to what we would call brick and mortar nonprofits, have seen profound surges in users during this global pandemic. You're listening to Create Community. I'm your host, Marsha Drucker. On this podcast, we're exploring the human side of community. I'm chatting with some amazing community builders to define what community truly means. Joining me today is Shannon Farley. Shannon focuses on the intersection of tech for good, women's rights, and human rights. She's the co-founder and executive director of Fast Forward, the accelerator for tech nonprofits. Prior to Fast Forward, she was the founding executive director of Spark, the world's largest network of millennial philanthropists. She also helped start the W. Haywood Burns Institute, an award-winning juvenile justice reform organization. Shannon and I chat about how she's creating community among entrepreneurs building social impact tech startups, how people can apply their skills to social movements, and how we can leverage community in the social sector. Let's jump right into it. Shannon, welcome to Create Community. Super excited to chat with you today. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. So to start these episodes off, I really love to get an understanding of how my guest actually became a community builder in the first place. I think it's so fascinating how we all find ourselves on this path of life. I don't think anybody really sets out to be a community builder. So something that stood out to me in your journey is that you got involved with grassroots organizing pretty early on in your life. Can you tell me a little bit about how you kind of jumped into that and what that part of your life was like? Sure. I was really fortunate to get a scholarship to college, which included a work-study stipend, meaning that you would work to earn back the scholarship. And I went to Georgetown, which is a Jesuit university. So because of their values, you could either like check IDs in a library or at work at the cafeteria, which is pretty standard work-study employment, or you could work at a nonprofit in the community. And so I opted to work in a nonprofit in the community, and I got like a broad exposure to all the different things that were happening in the domestic violence space in Washington, D.C. And I was doing that at the same time as sort of the 2000 election happened. And so I was sort of instantly politically motivated to respond to it in the streets. And so I got great exposure to sort of student-led grassroots organizing campaigns And I learned a lot in that process of being sort of a newly activated young person advocating for democracy in a really wild time. And what did that experience teach you about community? Like, how were you connecting with others who, you know, had the same passion for it? Yeah. um, One, there's real opportunity to affect change when you are organizing within a community, like we felt that things were moving and progressing because we were coming together on a pretty regular basis. We weren't winning that often uh, between the election and the Iraq war and like things that were happening, but certainly there were some policy movements. So that felt really exciting. It can also be quite joyful to be working on things that matter with new people that you are just getting exposure to new cultures and communities. And so I really caught the bug for this lifestyle that I've been a part of ever since. 
Super cool. Well, I'm excited to dive more into that later on into the interview, how, you know, people can get involved now. But continuing on with your journey, what did you study in university and how did you start your career out of that? Yeah, in university, I was an American studies major, which is kind of like a basic liberal arts degree. And after undergrad, I went to go work for an organization called the W. Haywood Burns Institute, which I helped start it. I got hooked up with a civil rights attorney named James Bell, and we worked on disproportionate minority confinement issues inside of juvenile detention centers. But it was an, a startup. I applied for our 501c3 and I helped set up our financial models and I helped get us registered and sort of set up contracts with large prison systems throughout the country. So it was this, I was working on social justice issues, but I was building infrastructure as sort of my role in my young 20s, which was a real gift. So I got this exposure to what it meant to create a social impact startup. That's incredible to have that amount of responsibility in your early 20s. It really, you know, it teaches you a lot and not everybody could handle it. But I think if you're, you know, like really hungry and excited coming out of school, that's the perfect type of role to start in. I mean, I think that's a real advantage to startups. And often when we are coaching young people, we talk a lot about like one of the things that's amazing about working at a startup are the combination of high and low tasks you get to work on. So you get to be part of strategy meetings and finance meetings and things that typically in a large organization you would never have exposure to. You also have to like make the copies and probably clean the bathroom and the <laughs> and different things. But it's the combination of the tasks that give you a holistic view of like what it means to build institutions that last. And the Burns Institute is thriving these days, and they're a really important part of the defund the police movement here in the United States and rethinking what is human rights centric treatment of children inside of prisons. Wow, that's incredible that you were able to, you know, make such an impact early on in your career and to move on in your career to other things, but to see the organization that you you helped to establish really thriving in that way. So what are some of the skills from the grassroots organizing that you did that kind of took you further into your career and, and really helped you along your path? Yeah, I think there are so many parallels between working in grassroots organizing and being an entrepreneur. And the primary parallel for me, at least, is sort of the mind space of magical thinking. Like just imagining that things could be different and then putting structure around it to manifest it. That's what organizers do when they see a problem and they imagine a different world and present policies and help implement those policies. And that's what entrepreneurs do when they see a problem, they create a product, they build the product and scale it to solve a social problem at meaningful scale. And so like many of the day-to-day -day skills I use are not that different. You know, like writing compelling emails and giving speeches and fundraising and sort of empowering team members to own parts of movements or parts of products. Like those are very similar across the spectrum. And now that I work at Fast Forward, which we started nearly seven years ago, we do have a bias towards investing in people who have worked in grassroots organizing because they tend to be hustlers, right? Like they can get it done and they see the world in a very different way and are motivated for change, which is such a critical component to being a successful entrepreneur. 
Absolutely. I'd also argue that it's such a big component of being a really successful community builder as well. Like I think that like magical thinking and really like envisioning something that maybe doesn't exist, the community that you're seeking and really, you know, just having that imagination to think about creating it and then taking the steps to do it. I think it's so important and there's a lot of parallels there as well. Before we jump into fast forward, tell me a little bit about Spark. What was Spark and what inspired you to create it? So after I left the Burns Institute, I went to graduate school and I came out and I'd been doing, again, a lot of grassroots organizing around global women's rights issues. And there was this group of people. And at the time, it was like 100 people with an email list and a PayPal account. And they were crowdsourcing donations to grassroots women's organizations around the world. And I just thought that was so exciting. It was 2005. And crowdfunding wasn't a term yet. If you can imagine, like, you know, this was in the world before Kiva, before Kickstarter, this way of organizing and moving power and money really hadn't been put to the test. And it just sounded like so much fun. And so I was the first executive director of Spark. And from the very beginning looked really different than typical women's rights organizations. From day one, it was 50% male members, which is uncommon, but we were organizing with the people that we knew. And again, like, you know, we had male friends. So they were part of our vision for how we would pull this off. We also were national and pretty quickly global membership base because we were young people who had been organizing. So our friends were in all of these places. So from the beginning, you know, typically with women's rights work, it tends to be place-based in the early stage. And for us, it was on the internet. It was digital. It didn't have that constraint. And so I took what I learned at the Burns Institute and from my organizing work, and we applied it to Spark, and it really thrived. It became the largest network of millennial philanthropists in the world, and we were giving exclusively to women's causes. How big is it now? Like, how big did it end up growing? In the end, it was 7,000 active members. But recently, and I'm really proud of this, it was acquired by the Global Fund for Women, and the Global Fund for Women is an organization that's been around for several decades, and it is really one of the leaders in the global women's rights space. And much of Spark's grant-making model was inspired by the Global Fund for Women. So it's really special to have found a home with movement leaders and infusing it with like another generation of donor activists who want to spend their energy and love and attention on advancing women's rights. That's so amazing. So important. So congratulations on that acquisition. That's so huge. Tell me a little bit more about the community aspect of it. Like, how were you connecting those members that were part of it to each other? And what did some of some of those initiatives look like? Yeah, it seems wild now. But if, again, like imagine this is a world before Facebook. So uh, or Facebook. Really <laughs> I, can't, I can't even imagine that. <laughs> but okay, let's kind try. of starting <laughs> at the same time. We really leveraged the early internet. So we basically had a wiki space where anyone could post comments, you could vote on where we would send the money, we would make distributive decisions on how to spread the money. And then we would use PayPal to send the money. So it was really like an internet first organization, which is not crazy to think of in 2020. But in 
the early 2000s, that was wild. And so it was hard for us to get support from sort of traditional institutional partners. So we really had to rely on the community to fund and activate each other so that we could advance the causes we cared most about. That's amazing. That's like your really early, early days to the community world and to building something like that. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't like an AOL chat room, but it wasn't like much <laughs> further than that. That's yeah. so funny. That's, <laughs> I think that's amazing. And what are some really like key things that you learned from that experience that, that you kind of took to your next venture? Everything. Like this is the thing about community. Like Communities don't change that much. So the things that you learn and how to activate in one space can be applied to the next. So I'd been at Spark for seven years and I was kind of looking for my next thing. And I was lucky enough to sit next to a really wonderful human being named Kevin Berenblatt at a party. And Kevin had been, a, he is a tech guy. He'd worked in the tech community for his whole career and he'd had a company and he'd sold it. And he was sort of in what I lovingly refer to as a philanthropic walkabout. Like he was trying to imagine what he could do with his tech skills. And he'd been contacting a number of nonprofits saying like, hey, can I volunteer? And they didn't know what to do with him. Like the skill sets and the language and the framing of technologists is so different than what we see in the social sector. And so at this party, he was peppering me with questions like, why aren't there more Khan Academies or Wikipedias? His, his primary question was, why weren't there more organizations leveraging technology to achieve social impact? And my answer, honestly, was, dude, don't get me started. There's a lot of reasons. Um, and that's because at the time, there weren't funders that understood the model, tech models. It was just really hard to get started. There weren't founder communities like we see in the tech startup space. There weren't meetups. Meetup wasn't a word. Those weren't things we had in the social sector. And he said, we should go work on that. So that's what we did. And we started Fast Forward in 2014. And we basically took everything we had learned from our different worlds. So like everything I'd learned in the social sector and grassroots organizing and everything he'd learned in running tech companies. And we combined our personal and professional networks to create the first mentorship network for Fast Forward. That's incredible. I love that story and just how organically that happened. So really excited to jump into Fast Forward. Can you share a little bit more about what it is, just for anybody who's maybe not familiar? Sure. At Fast Forward, we want to get the best tech applied to our biggest social problems. And we really believe that great tech starts with startups. So our sort of most famous program is our Accelerator program. An Accelerator program pretty common term in the tech world. In the social sector, we would just call it a leadership development program. But basically, we take early stage organizations, we give them money and training and love to get them on their feet, and then they go out into the world and do their thing. And we run a number of other programs now that support the larger community of tech for good enthusiasts, including we have a really active Facebook group called the Global Tech Nonprofit Community which is a combination of technologists that are interested in sort of four good approaches and tech nonprofit founders and then just other people who are in the wider ecosystem. We also have a newsletter that goes out once a month called What's Good in Tech that has thousands and thousands of people who are interested in how you could apply ethical technology to our biggest issues. 
so we run a number of programs. But fast forward, the spirit at that party uh, was really like, if we were starting from scratch as new entrepreneurs, what do we wish we had? And that was community, really. So we fostered that community through our networks. And it's been just so special to watch it thrive in the years since. That's amazing. Yeah, it's so needed. And it's, it's not something that you really see. Like, I'm, I'm even thinking of, you know, what's going on in Toronto. You know, here we have a really thriving tech ecosystem. There's amazing accelerators, like specifically for tech companies. But I don't think there's a lot of, you know, programs and anything specific to people who are building social impact tech startups specifically. So it's, it's so incredibly needed. Tell me a little bit more about how you actually build community among these entrepreneurs that are building social impact tech startups? Like, what sorts of programs are you running? What do some of your virtual events look like these days? You were really intentional about creating infrastructure around community building. So one of our philosophies is that issue verticals aren't that helpful, because it's already so strange to be a nonprofit tech entrepreneur that you really can learn from anybody who's building, even if one person's building in healthcare and another person is building in education. You need exposure to these founders because only this like select group of delightful weirdos understand what it means to be building a tech product. Your central true north is impact. And so we create experiences both in person and online to foster that. So the accelerator is one. We just completed uh, our summer accelerator. The teams met virtually for three months every week. And it was a combination of founder fireside chats and trainings and a lot of storytelling practice and connections to about 100 tech mentors. The teams came from all over the US and Brazil this year, and they're working on a variety of issues, but all folk with the singular focus of social impact. And then in addition to the Accelerator, we have um, several digital communities, including the Facebook group called the Global Tech Nonprofit Community. We also have an active Slack community for founders of tech nonprofits. And during lockdown, have basically been having monthly online events to bring tech for good enthusiasts and tech nonprofit founders and friends together to talk about how to navigate these strange and hard times. It's so needed, like, especially during these times for these people to like have this avenue to connect with one another and to have the Slack group and to have the Facebook group and to have all these awesome virtual events that they can participate in. Tell me a little bit about the demo days that you guys hosted. Yeah, we recently put the videos online, but we brought together like over a thousand people who are interested in learning more about these tech for good ideas. And each founder in tech nonprofits, mostly they have co-founder models, but one founder from the team would pitch their idea for three minutes and ask for resources from the community. And I'm thrilled to say the community provided in the course of a couple of demo days, the community provided $400,000 to support these organizations in the next step of their journey. And it was just really special. It was like putting on an oxygen mask that in these dark and often scary times to sit and listen to founders who have really deployed magical thinking about a world that we want to see. Some of the teams are directly building tools that impact those of us 
in our communities that are infected by COVID, which is everyone, from distance learning to communication with prisoners and their loved ones to AI-powered research on the connection between COVID and cancer, as well as other ideas from mental health for teletherapy for youth at risk for mental health issues to, in the United States, this is really crazy, it's probably not true in Canada, but 70% of the United States cannot text 911, which is our emergency service. So a founder built an app that sits on top of the legacy technology to allow anyone to text 911. Wow, like all of these things that you just mentioned, like so needed, so important. So it's so cool that these people are working on it and that they have this community of support and, you know, people that are really there and kind of like helping to guide them through it and, and like people to bounce their ideas off of. What sort of discussions are taking place within your Facebook group and within the Slack group? You know, it's a whole range right? It's everything from very tactical stuff, like we're hiring our first developer, does anyone know anybody great? To I'm evaluating a builder by decision, should I buy this SaaS platform? Or should I build it on my own? Who's done it before? And what do you think? To someone recently started a Feel Good Friday. We're all in it. <laughs> it's like a really um, tech nonprofits, in contrast to what we would call brick and mortar nonprofits have seen profound surges in users during this global pandemic because they're digital first, right? So like instead of any of the remote learning solutions or medicine solutions, or even in California, we have a group that does air quality monitoring, like things have been crazy and tech nonprofits have been very busy. So these feel good Fridays are both like celebrations of things that are going really well and um, a chance to just be positive. Oh my God. I feel like everybody needs that. <laughs> like whatever industry you're in, whatever it is that you're building, you need that community of people around you that are just like there to celebrate the wins, but also kind of commiserate the losses as well. Do you feel like, is the Slack more active than the Facebook group, or is it kind of like the same people in both? It's a little bit different. The Slack is founders and senior leadership of tech nonprofits. So it does tend to be a little bit tactical and maybe a little bit more personal because it's not fully open. Uh, and the Facebook community tends to be like a lot of people who are new to the tech for good space and are kind of trying to figure out what their role is and how to volunteer and engage. But I will say like some amazing things have come out of it. Like we post fast forward posts, all of the funding opportunities in the tech nonprofit space, like all nonprofits struggle with funding. It's often very hard to discover funding opportunities. So we just, that's our service to the space. And um, one of the things we posted is the TED Prize, which is called the Audacious Project. We posted the application in our channels. And this group that, you know, we have been friends with for years, but they're not part of our portfolio. And they're really incredible called Humanitarian Open Street Map, which is an open source tool to help human rights workers document and track their work. It's a really incredible tech nonprofit. Well, they found out about the Audacious Prize through the community. They applied. They got it. And now they have millions and millions and millions of dollars in the coffers to advance their very important mission.
So how has COVID impacted fast forward? I'm, uh, I'm assuming that it kind of accelerated what you're doing. What have like the past, you know, several months looked like for you guys? Yeah, it's been wild. Because I'm a, like a street organizer, I have a real bias towards in-person engagements. And that just doesn't work in these times. So we spent quarantine sort of reimagining if there were no walls to our program, what would it look like and how would it function? And how would you build things that are meaningfully digital first? And it's been really eye-opening for this street organizer. We ran the accelerator fully virtually, and that worked incredibly well. And I think most importantly, it made our accelerator program even more inclusive. We do a good job. Uh, you know, vast majority of our founders are women and people of color, but they tend to be pretty young in part because we required people to be in person and to come to San Francisco. So this accelerator program, far more parents participated, entire teams participated, and people could participate from wherever they needed to live. May that be Brazil or in rural, rural Maine, they could engage in this community. And that was really special. We also had mentors from Bangalore and Dublin uh, and speakers in New Zealand and sort of like all over because that's, that's where people are these days, all over. So that was really special. The other thing we did, which might be interesting to your readers, is like, you know, one of our beliefs is we want more tech nonprofits. We really believe that technology can unlock scaled impact. But to do that, we need people to apply their ideas to technology. So we wrote a book called The Tech Nonprofit Playbook, which is basically all of the curricula and content from the accelerator over the last seven years in an ebook form. And it's available for free on our website at ffwd.org backslash playbook. And it's been great. We've already heard from people from all over the world who are applying the lessons to start their own social impact startup. That's amazing. I'm sure there's a lot of lessons in there that people in community could apply as well. So we'll definitely link to that in the show notes. I love what you said about accessibility as well. And, you know, really being able to just like expand the scope of what you're doing and expand like just the opportunities for people to participate. I've noticed the same thing with my own community with Fuck Up Nights Toronto, very much like like it's a local chapter of a global community. We would host our events at Shopify, you know, like in the downtown core of Toronto. And we thought we were doing like an amazing job with accessibility because, you know, like the, the building was accessible, you know, like wheelchair accessible. Our prices for the tickets were really reasonable. We had pay what you can tickets. We would offer free tickets to underrepresented communities and people who, you know, couldn't afford it. We, so there was like all these things that we thought we were doing to make it accessible. And when we took it online with doing some virtual events, there were so many people who reached out to me afterwards, you know, just on LinkedIn or through Instagram. Or, or whatever it may be saying that, you know, they've been following the community for the past like three and a half years that it existed in Toronto and they just, they couldn't make it because maybe they live like far from downtown, they live in a suburb or they work somewhere, you know, that's like a long drive to the city and it just like wouldn't make sense after work. So there was just like all these types of people that, you know, have been following, have been watching videos online, but could never really like get to a session in time to make it downtown. So it was really cool to have them participate as well. And like, yeah, parents, were a huge demographic in that as well, where, you know, finally they were able to participate. I mean, that is my hope, like as we emerge from this kind of wild moment that we like are meaningfully integrated into a hybrid world.
So I wanted to get your advice for community creators and listeners of this podcast. So I think with your background in grassroots organizing, really interesting to kind of tackle what's coming up with the election. So do you have any advice for people who are kind of like newly activated activists? Um, how can they really like use this moment as a springboard to being in the social sector? And how can they leverage community during this time? Yeah, I'm really glad you asked that question. It's something I've been thinking about a lot. Um, I could not be more thrilled, particularly in the United States, that this moment, in all of its thorniness, has sprung like national attention to some of our biggest social problems. And they won't go away in November. So my hope is that um, as people are newly engaged to think about this as opportunity, really a starting point to work with communities and to build into communities what you need so that we can advance the values that we have. And there are great tech nonprofits working on mobilizing these communities. In the Black Lives Matter movement, we've supported a number of groups for years, one of which is fantastic called Campaign Zero. If people are interested in what's happening in the defund the police movement and prison reform within the United States, that's a great community to plug into to see what's going on. We also just had one of our groups that graduated this past week. Um, they launched an app for young people called Turn Up. And it's basically all of the activities and events, both online and in-person, that are happening in your local community for young people to engage. You know, the founder is this really interesting guy, Zev Shapiro, and he has been kind of an activist his whole life. And post-Parkland, which in the United States was a school shooting moment, and we have so many of them here, it was hard to get engaged because the existing social networks like TikTok and Instagram and Facebook are not purpose-built for youth organizers or even like young people who want to like dabble in social justice. And so they built this app. It has thousands of users already and it only launched a couple weeks ago. It's a really powerful tool and they exist all over the world. It's not just in the U.S. So we have a directory of all the world's tech nonprofits on our website. Many of them are civic engagement groups uh, and other democracy groups in different places. So I encourage listeners to check it out. Find groups that are working on these issues because one of my favorite things is that human rights workers, as long as there have been human rights workers, have been early to adopt technology. Like the phone tree as a concept was developed by civil rights organizers, students in the 1950s here in the United States. That's awesome. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like they use the tools that are available. And so this is actually like a great equalizer that technology can provide access and support where there wasn't any. So I, I hope people are thinking about not just getting out in the streets and being a part of these movements, but how to leverage the computer in your pocket to get most of it done. Yeah, that's so important. I love the name of that app as well. That's so perfect. So I think it's so important for people to be able to really like leverage their personal and professional skills in this moment. So how do you think people can apply their personal and professional skills to social movements that they really care about? Yeah, social movements are like any group, like they need all of the things. So 
even if you've never had experience being a street organizer previously, they still need somebody who, like business organizers, people who can do product management, they need fundraisers, they need social media support. Movements are basically like little businesses and they need all the pieces of it. If you are an accountant, most movements are organized with infrastructure that need bookkeepers and auditors. Like there are things to do. So it's not really a question of how you would deploy your skills. It's just where. Yeah, it's so true. Like whatever it is that you're doing, I'm sure it could be used in something that you care about outside of work. So a matter of, you know, finding it and and seeing where you can contribute. And I think you'd be really surprised. So I want to jump into your personal community. I think it's so fascinating how community creators navigate their personal communities outside of the community that they're building as part of their professional journey. So are there any communities that you're part of and why are they meaningful to you? When your background is in organizing, you often like make friends in your organizer community. And that's certainly been true for me. And I'm just so grateful that I did some of this when I was young and had an opportunity to meet just really smart, talented people who've gone on in their careers and are now leading organizations. One of the things I find most fulfilling in my life, and it's work adjacent, but it's not because of work, is I have a community of women leaders who now lead foundations and large organizations and political movements that we met as like kids in the street. And we have remained friends. And we've remained friends because, well, I love them. They're brilliant and talented and fabulous. They're also very, very fun. So it's just a deep joy to be around them. It's also still tragically very weird to be a woman in a leadership position like many of us are. There's still so few women CEOs and women founders of these movements. So it is buoying to be in the presence of fellow travelers who get what it means to feel like an other despite being in leadership. And so I'm just really grateful for those human beings as I navigate this part of my career. That's amazing. Yeah, I'm really glad that you have that tribe and in that community. How else do you sort of navigate outside of the tech ecosystem and SF? I know it can be kind of like all encompassing when you live in that region. By getting out of the region. (laughs) I still spend a lot of time, like my volunteer time, my um, activist time with various human rights communities in the women's rights space, but also the sort of human rights space. So I volunteer for the Awesome Freedom Forum, and I volunteer for the Whitman Institute and some other groups that really are thinking about what the next phase of human rights looks like in this world. And those folks aren't necessarily techies, although there are some techies. Uh, Of course. (laughs) But uh, yeah, it's, it's a different community of activists. So this is a little bit of a strange question, but I love asking it and hearing people's answers to this. I've heard some really diverse things being said. So how do you choose your people? You know, like the friends that are closest to you, people that you spend the most time with. Do you feel like you're kind of intentional about it and you look for certain qualities or is it something that happens a little bit more organically for you? I have a core urban family, uh, is what we call each other, where we've known each other for a long time. So that's certainly one part of the people I've chosen. I've known them for decades now, and we've grown up together, and now we've kids together, and we're watching those kids grow up together. So it's this space of people who, in many ways, practice like some of the lived values, which are most important to me. 
So they tend to be like really grounded in social justice values. They really care about the world and exposing themselves and the people around them to what they're learning on a regular basis. And they tend to be super curious. And that's the environments that I want to be in. And, you know, we are in the Bay Area, uh, but only like two of us work in tech. Wow. Which is the other piece, like even <laughs> even though we're here, you know, one's a children's book illustrator and another's a lawyer and one is a wallpaper uh, magnet and you know, they're doing all different kinds of things, but the core of who they are is very, very similar. So I'm grateful for those folks. I love that. I can totally relate to that too. I feel like, you know, I have a few like core groups of friends. I'm still really close with my high school friends and we all like, again, like have really similar values, but you know, one is like a scientist, one is a teacher, one is in sales. And then I have my university friends who are kind of like in similar fields as me, I would say. And then I have more like entrepreneur friends that I, that I met through the work that I do with Fuck Up Nights. So it's, I think it's so important to just like connect with people on similar values, but, but just have people from, you know, like diverse industries, diverse backgrounds, and really bring all of that together. So my last question for you is, and I ask this of everybody on the podcast, what does the word community mean to you? Community is the how. An idea that exists just in your head or just in your sphere can't live and breathe. Community is the how you deploy. I love that. That's such a unique definition. Awesome. Well, Shannon, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. This was such a great conversation. I'm really glad I got to chat with you too. Thank you for the opportunity. I had such a great time chatting with Shannon, and I hope you learned as much as I did from this conversation. You can connect with Shannon on LinkedIn by searching for Shannon Farley or follow her on Twitter at Shannon underscore Farley. And you can learn more about Fast Forward at ffwd.org. Thanks for tuning in to Create Community, a podcast where I chat with incredible community builders to define what community truly means. You can check out the series on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you normally listen. Please remember to subscribe and leave us a rating and review. I'd really love to hear your feedback. You can also follow us on Instagram at createcommunitypod or check out our website at createcommunitypod.com for updates. Once again, I'm Marsha Drucker, your host, signing off. A huge thank you to Origins Media House for producing this series. You can find them at originsmediahouse.com, where house is spelled H-A-U-S, or on LinkedIn and Instagram at Origins Media House and Twitter at Origins Media.